0: If you will join me in Luke chapter 6, Luke 6, we continue on our journey through the gospel of Luke. The title of this morning's sermon is Necessity and Mercy on the Sabbath. Our key words for our worshipers in training are Necessity, Mercy, and Sabbath. Luke chapter 6, we will in just a moment look at verses 1 through 11. Now, in our journey so far through the gospel of Luke, we've seen several instances now where Jesus has had a very direct confrontation with the Pharisees. I've pointed this out several times, so I'm not going to rehash each of these instances. But I want to highlight the fact that the issue that we are going to address this morning, Jesus' clash with the Pharisees on the proper observance of the Sabbath. This is one of the most frequent confrontations that we see Jesus have with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. Now in one way or another, Jesus and the Pharisees go toe-to-toe on the issue of the Sabbath on numerous occasions and all of this stems from the primary issue that plagues the Pharisees and the very issue that is so important to all of us. It is their self-righteousness. It is the inability of a self-righteous man to be humbled to the place of viewing himself far below God. And instead, being a self-righteous man who places himself on a platform that rests high above God. This was the problem of the Pharisees. This is the problem of every unbelieving heart. And Jesus was very concerned about a right understanding of what God requires on the Sabbath. And time and time again, we see him uh, correcting the legalism of the Pharisees with regard to their Sabbath observances. Not just because Jesus loves and honors and seeks to protect this day, but because Jesus wants to show us that A disregard for a right understanding of the nature and the use of the law of God is a disregard for God himself. Now we have over the last year and a half addressed the issue of the Sabbath on two different occasions. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail describing uh, every reason as to why we believe the fourth commandment of God is binding on Christians today why we meet on the first day of the week instead of the last, nor am I going to deal with the various texts and the uh, the arguments that many will turn to in an attempt to negate Sabbath observance for Christians. But I want to deal specifically with what the text says this morning, but, but realize that all of these issues are building upon other areas that are certainly relevant to the discussion. So if you're not clear on those things that I've mentioned, I really encourage you to go back and to listen to sermons earlier this year, one on the fourth commandment, one early uh, last year called Sabbath, resting in the Lord. So suffice it to say that our assumption up front is... Sabbath observance is necessary to the Christian life so long as, this is important, listen carefully to how I say it, so long as it is understood and applied correctly. Now this, of course, is understanding what the Sabbath is and how it is applied according to God's command and Jesus' instruction, not the laws of man, which is the very thing that Jesus is refuting in the text this morning as he deals with the Pharisees. The self-righteous inclination of the legal hearts of man to turn away from grace, the grace of Christian freedom within the bounds established by God. Toward a legal framework of man's own making, which is in the end only self serving and destructive. So, with that assumption in mind, the the specific area of concern in our text today is what has historically been referred to as duties of necessity and mercy. I want to begin by reading a paragraph from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, of which we hold to as a church. This is from chapter 22 and paragraph 8. And it reminds us all, at least in part, of what we've discussed in the past with regards to the Lord's Day and upholding the fourth commandment as God has prescribed. It says this, The Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord when men after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. I think it's wonderful and it's certainly very intentional that the writers of our confession did not set out to make a list of of do's and don'ts as it relates to the observance of the Lord's day. But simply identified what the scriptures tell us with regards to what the day is for. And when exceptions are to be made, when circumstances arise. That statement, when duty, uh, duties of necessity and mercy is derived from texts like Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. So let's begin in verse 1 and hear from the word of God. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked. And ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, God's law indicates in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that a person is allowed to eat from their neighbor's grain field if they were hungry so long as they did not uh, cut down any of the crop or put any of it in their basket to take with them. The idea being that the grain would provide enough food for them to be filled in their hunger, uh, but it wasn't enough uh, to matter in the overall crop yield of the farmer. It's a display of mercy. It was written into God's rule of law to show mercy to one's neighbor, and the Israelites were to provide for one another in this way. So according to God's law, the disciples were not doing anything at all that was inappropriate. They have not stolen, they've not added to their bag, they've not cut anything down. They're simply plucking grain, rubbing it in their hands to get down to the edible part and eating it. Completely legitimate, entirely Legal. So the important thing for us to notice in verse 1 is when this is taking place. It says right there in the beginning, on a Sabbath, on a Sabbath day. And this will be the issue, that it happened on a Sabbath day. Look again at verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? (laughs) Here are the Pharisees. Where do they come from? Nobody really knows, but here they are. Obviously, they're following Jesus and the disciples in some way. They're immediately on the spot to confront Jesus' disciples. Full of arrogance, full of self-righteous pride, they ask, What do you think you're doing? This is the Sabbath. Why are you plucking and eating grain on the Sabbath? You don't need a lot of study time in the scriptures to figure out that the Pharisees aren't addressing a breaking of God's commands as it relates to the Sabbath. There is nothing at all in the scriptures about their plucking and eating of the grain that would be considered a breaking of God's law. But notice what the Pharisees said. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so the very thing they were accusing the disciples of is breaking the Sabbath law. (laughs) Now over the course of about 300 years, the Jewish leaders developed a collection of teachings called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was basically the Jewish teacher's commentary on the legal teachings and the writings, uh, their writings on the law of God. It became the basis of religious authority for traditional Judaism. <laughs> now the Mishnah is grouped into to various sections that deal with different areas of Jewish life and each of these was subdivided further to the point of having a teaching on nearly anything you could imagine. So when the Pharisees asked the disciples why they were doing something unlawful, we must not be mistaken to assume that they were referring to God's law. They most certainly were not referring to God's law at all. The issue at hand was the law that had been developed by the Pharisees. They built fences around God's law adding to it with restrictions that included lengthy lists of legalistic do's and don'ts in order to, in their minds, ensure that God's people would not transgress it. And we see that very thing in our own culture, don't we? It is a regular tendency of a legal heart within man to resist and restrict liberty with new or or more law as opposed to operating within the legal bounds of Christian freedom according to a rightly formed conscience in the Word of God. Now, of course, equally as troubling, and perhaps more prevalent in our culture, is the man who claims Christian freedom and completely disregards the law of God altogether. Now, both conclusions are lethal, and they really end up in the very same place. A rejection of the true nature of God and what God requires and how we might live holy and happy lives upon Him instead of our own righteousness. I was going to give examples of what this might look like, but I want to keep us from what is our natural tendency to hear the condemnation of certain sins that we are opposed to and immediately swell up in pride, or to hear the rebuke of sins for which we engage and be stirred to bitterness. So instead of specific examples, I want us all to consider our own hearts. Consider what, what fences have I built around God's good law to keep myself and others from enjoying the very thing that God has intended in his law? How does it fuel my own self-righteousness? Likewise, what of God's law have I simply neglected and ignored with a lawless heart because I am more content to establish my own rule of life instead of that which God has established for me as my king, as my Lord? Am I a legal-hearted hypocrite? Or am I a lawless-hearted snubber of authority when it comes to the law? All of us tend toward one or the other. And depending on what the issue is, we may be in one direction with some issues and in the other direction on certain others. But it's remarkable, isn't it, how Jesus directs our hearts to see the path clearly. For some of us, the branches of lawlessness. For others, the branches of legalism. Have overgrown and hidden much of the path. But Jesus clears away the overgrowth. He helps us to see where to place our next step. And this is what he does when he confronts the Pharisees. And in doing so, he's teaching us the very principle to live in rightly honoring, in obedience to God. All of his commandments. Now the lethal assumption of the Pharisees was that they could develop restrictions that would keep men from breaking the law of God. And what ended up happening, of course, is that God was no longer the lawmaker. But the Jewish leaders were. And they were always making sure that everybody else was adhering to these laws that they had established while simultaneously attempting to find their own ways to get around them. So when the Pharisees addressed the disciples, they were making reference to the Mishnah that explicitly listed in three of its categories, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. So as the Pharisees saw it, Jesus' disciples reaped when they plucked the grain, and they threshed and they winnowed when they rubbed it in their hands. So the Pharisees think they've got it. Jesus' disciples are lawbreakers, and Jesus simply stands by and watches it happen. What kind of teacher is he? What kind of man of God would watch the law of The law that has been established be broken and say not a word. But before the disciples could respond, Jesus does it for them. And he does so in two ways. His first response is verses 3 and 4. Let's read that again. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now Jesus' first argument is going to deal with what we call duties of necessity. And he draws from the history of God's covenant people in First Samuel 21. And notice his statement, Have you not read? Of course they've read. He's giving a little bit of a jab here. Like, surely you teachers of the law know what the scriptures say. Surely you can interpret them properly. So he deals with the account of David when he was fleeing for his life after Jonathan had come and informed him that Saul intended to kill him. With a handful of followers, David left very quickly, but he did not bring along with him any food, nor did he bring a weapon. So when he arrived at the tabernacle in Nob, he sought food and a sword from the priests. But the only food available was the bread that had just been removed from the table of shoe bread. Now the consecrated bread, this will help us to make sense of what Jesus is saying. The consecrated bread consisted of 12 loaves of unleavened bread that were arranged in two rows of six on a table of gold. Every Sabbath, according to God's command, the loaves were removed and new loaves replaced them. In the Old Testament, you would see these loaves of bread referred to as the bread of the presence because it was placed in the presence of God. This was all to symbolize God being the source of Israel's strength, the source of their nourishment, and to remind the people of their absolute dependence upon God for everything physically, everything spiritually. This most certainly would have been in the minds of the people when they heard Jesus proclaim, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus is the true bread of the presence in whom we must place absolute dependence for all of life. But the bread was <laughs> removed from the table, it was ceremonially holy, and it could only be eaten by the Arianic priests at the conclusion of its seven-day display in God's presence. So David comes to the tabernacle. He is desperate. He and his men with him are wanting of food, and they are fleeing from the wrath of Saul. And David comes to the temple, and he asks the priest Ahimelech, for food. And Ahimelech told David that the only food available was the consecrated bread of the presence that had been removed from the table. So what does he do? All he does is ask David if he and his men were ceremonially clean. And upon the affirmative answer, Ahimelech gave the bread to the men. They left with the bread. And 1 Samuel tells us that David and his men enjoyed a hidden feast. Now what's Jesus' point in all of this? Why does he bring this up? He chose this account because of the similarities between David and his men and Jesus and his disciples. Now, what's obvious from the account of David is that he received the bread when? On the Sabbath day. How is that obvious? Well, the bread was to be removed and replaced and the old bread to be consumed by the priests on the Sabbath day. It was still there. It was available Therefore, we recognize when that was. Likewise, we recognize that neither instance, the instance with David and his men or the instance with Jesus and his disciples, neither of these was a matter of life and death, but it was an issue of simple hunger. They strengthened themselves that they might continue on in what they were doing. So the principle seems clear. If David and Ahimelech, the priest, could ignore the divine restrictions of God when necessity demanded it, then surely Jesus, the exalted one, could ignore the man-made restriction. And in fact, not only were they not breaking the law of God by doing a deed of necessity, they were in absolute obedience to the law of God because they were laboring with Jesus in the service of preaching and teaching and evangelizing. They were worshiping. So the disciples were the true Sabbath keepers. While the Pharisees were wandering around after them, attempting to determine just how they could catch Jesus and his followers doing something wrong. In Matthew's account of the same instance, he recorded additional words of Jesus as he responded to the Pharisees. He said, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy. And not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so again, Jesus slams home the reality that the Pharisees do not understand the very word of God they claim to be experts in. God wasn't after their legal adherence to man made laws, He was after merciful hearts molded in glad obedience to God's just and righteous commands because of the transformative work of God in their lives. But as if Jesus' slap across the face of the Pharisees and telling them they did not understand the Bible wasn't enough, the second part of his response was perhaps an even larger bomb to explode. In verse 5, he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath what a staggering claim notice Jesus doesn't say it doesn't matter because I'm the Lord and I'm doing away with the Sabbath it's gone now he doesn't say that many read this statement and assume that Jesus is saying that he fulfilled the Sabbath law and is doing away with it altogether therefore our obedience never looks the same But that's not what's going on here at all, is it? As a matter of fact, he makes very clear that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He holds authority over the Sabbath. He has the divine right to determine what a right adherence to, what obedience to the Sabbath looks like. Now, of course, that's a shocking statement to the Pharisees who think of the Sabbath in terms of its institution in the garden when God created everything and then he himself rested. And they recall the, the, the booming proclamation from Mount Sinai as God gave the law to his people. But Jesus here says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And in doing so, important for us is that he's clarifying exactly what the day is. And perhaps, more importantly for the Pharisees, what it's not. Interestingly, as a culture, we're on the opposite end of the Sabbath spectrum than the Pharisees were. A lot of ink has been spilled in seeking to explain why the fourth commandment doesn't really apply to Christians today. And explain how it's not really dealt with in the New Testament at all. But it seems that Jesus very clearly deals with the Sabbath issue and in fact places himself as the central figure. Which, by the way, is why the early Christians called their day of worship the Lord's day and why we now observe the Sabbath on Sunday instead of Saturday since Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. But I said I wasn't going to address those things, so that was just free. (laughs) Now when Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's asserting his authority as lawgiver and as law interpreter. He calls himself, and we'll see this time and again through Luke, he calls himself the son of man. This comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's descriptive of his lordship, of his kingship, of his rule, of his reign and authority. So his view is definitive. He is the king. We are his subjects. He asserts his very unique relationship to the law. He owns the Sabbath. Therefore, he is the object of what the Sabbath is all about. It's all about the worship of Jesus. Do you see it? He claims an absolute authority to interpret what is to be done on the Sabbath. And so he has every right to reject the man-made law of the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't attack the Sabbath. He attacks the rabbinical traditions with regard to the Sabbath. So in this first account, as the Lord of the Sabbath, by his authority, Jesus establishes a principle by which the Sabbath should be observed. Namely, that we are to do those things which promote the purposes of the day. And in this instance, it is the duties of necessity. Of course, we all want to ask immediately, well, what is necessity? What is necessary? Well... By diligent preparation for the Lord's day, making sure our earthly affairs are cared for the other six days of the week, deeds of necessity will be rare. Unless, of course, you are someone who performs a deed of necessity as your calling. This would be someone like a pastor or an ER doctor or a hospital nurse or a firefighter that these are right and appropriate necessities to engage in on the Lord's Day. But when God sent manna from heaven for the Israelites to eat, they collected it each day. But on the day prior to the Sabbath, what did God command them to do? To collect enough for two days, that on the Sabbath day they would not need to labor, but that they could rest and worship. It was for their good. So perhaps instead of us asking, can I or should I do this, we should ask ourselves, why would I want to? Unless it's a legitimate necessity, why would we want to rob ourselves of the very blessing that God has designed for us and rob God of our obedience? his command. Let's continue reading. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. On another Sabbath day, Jesus did what he always did on the Sabbath. He went into the synagogue to worship with God's people. And, of course, he was teaching who was there. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees. But notice what Luke says they were doing. They weren't there to worship. They weren't there to hear from the word of God. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. Why? So that they might find reason to accuse him. They're looking to score points. If he heals, then we have something by which to accuse him. Isn't it just, it's foul to consider what these words are saying. They wanted to see if Jesus was going to make well a man who had lost the use of his hand in an agrarian society when his hands were so important. Not so that they could say, who is this man that casts out demons and heals the lame and gives sight to the blind and raises people from the dead? That's not their intention. With hearts of hatred and self-righteousness. They wanted to be able to say, he has broken our law. To Golgotha he must go. It's a vivid picture of the darkened self-righteous and unbelieving heart, isn't it? Friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ, this is a picture of your heart as well. Why have you rejected Christ? Is it because He's not given you what you've wanted? He has not submitted to your rule of law and submitted and adhered Himself to your standards? We see it time and time again. God transforming the hearts of men and women and children and making them new creations who have radically different lives because of the gospel, which is the power of salvation. And yet, despite Despite this, despite seeing this, your heart is dark, your soul is dead. And the more and more you live upon your own self-worth, the deeper and deeper you will sink into misery and decay. Your soul will wither away, useless, unfeeling, detrimental. But thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, that he makes withered hands and withered souls to be restored and reconciled to their proper place. I commend him to you if you do not know him. Examine your heart. See that you are looking to accuse him. Not delight in his kindness. You're seeking to reject him instead of submit to his authority as a loyal subject, unworthy of his grace. The heart of the Pharisee is the heart of every unbelieving man who is right in his own eyes. One way or another, every unbelieving man seeks to find a reason to accuse Jesus instead of bend their knee to him. And Jesus responds, look at verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? Jesus played their game. And they got stuck in their own trap. He knew what they wanted to see. But immediately he responds with what? The law of God, from which they were wrongly interpreting and by which they were seeking to condemn him. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Of course, Jesus is referring here to the sixth commandment. Do not kill. Now, as we learned a few months back as we were walking through the Ten Commandments, every negative command of God has a positive alternative. And every positive command of God, of course, has a negative alternative. So when, command, when God commands us, do not kill, we can also understand that to mean we have an obligation to preserve life. And you see the moral principle of the preservation of life played out in many of the civil laws of God throughout the Old Testament. It was very clear to the Pharisees as Jesus spoke that to take a life was against the law of God. But Jesus highlights the flip side of that. To have the opportunity to show mercy and to not do so is sinful. Equally as much as to Take life. And so Jesus presents them the option. Let me ask you boys, which of these shall I do on the Sabbath? Should I do good or should I do harm? Should I save a man's life or should I destroy it? They're stuck. Either way they answer, they're stuck. Either They answer rightly and prove themselves to be wrong or they answer wrongly and clearly violate what is explicitly forbidden by God. And we see here that the law of God serves its very purpose to shut the mouths of men in their own self-righteousness and to recognize the authority and the justice of the Son of Man. They have nothing to say. And so Jesus proceeded to do good and to show mercy. Verse 10, and after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And so we see Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath with regard to engaging in deeds of necessity and being faithful to show mercy In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, in the parallel passage to Luke 6, Mark records these words that help us to better understand what this all is about in light of what God has given to us on the Sabbath. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you see? The Sabbath is for doing good, and it is for your good. It is at the heart of the creative work of God, the rhythm of six days of work, one day of rest. It reflects something of God Himself. We were made for enjoying what God has given to us. And so we can enjoy this as He intended, as Isaiah 58 says, as a delight. I wonder if you've experienced God's day in the way that he has set forth, if you've experienced it as a true delight. It's gathering with God's people. We saw this with Jesus in the synagogue. It's utilizing the means of grace, hearing the word of God, reading from the scriptures as they're read out loud and preached. Giving ourselves to extended times of prayer, enjoying the ordinances of the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping with and encouraging one another. All of this God has designed for His day. Not because He needs it, but it's for our good. It's a day to do good and to have good done to us. You see, if you've not tasted the goodness of the Lord's day. Here's what you miss. The Sabbath and what we are to do on the Sabbath is all a foretaste of heaven itself. In always seeking to find ways to do other than what God has commanded on the Sabbath, or by making it a burden, we miss the very thing intended. It's for our good. And it's to always do good. Our Father has given to us, His children, something that is a delight. And the good that is for us to experience is intended for us to have a taste, a small taste, but a taste, nevertheless, of the eternal rest that awaits us. An eternity filled with worship, an eternity filled with goodness, It's what Jesus had to set right. It's what the Pharisees failed to see. God didn't command us the fourth commandment because he wants to make sure we have a little bit of misery each week. He gave it to us to lift our hearts and our eyes to see him above all else. That he is the great Sovereign king of the universe, worthy of our worship, worthy of our affection, worthy of our time. And instead we're so prone to ask, you mean I have to spend the whole day with God? Yes, we get to spend the entire day with God and in fact he commands it to nourish our souls, to rest our bodies, that we can do the very thing that we have been created to do, namely to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And you see, the one who rejects this does not understand what we are tasting. The goodness of God and the eternal rest that awaits You see this very thing in the Pharisees' response because they still didn't get it. Look at the very end of the passage in verse 11. They were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why? Because He healed a man with a withered hand. Because... He worked against their self-righteous decrees and made them to look like fools. And believe me, when I say that the heart of the Pharisees is present and alive today, there are entire theological systems that have been developed and are very prevalent, I might add, that are built around nothing more than denying God's command for us to delight in resting in Him. Why? Well, because they see it in the very same way the Pharisees did. Not as a delight. Not as a means of good. But as something that was intended to be a burden and a drudgery. So to wrap this up. Jesus essentially has three rebukes for the Pharisees in these two accounts. The first is that he says... You do not know the Scriptures. You claim you know the Bible, but you're clueless. You're absolutely mindless in terms of how it is to be interpreted. You're so concerned with your own law, your own rule of life, that you do not see what God has intended. Secondly, he tells them, you don't know what the Sabbath is for. You've interpreted it wrongly and you've made it something it's not. And nobody delights in it. Everybody finds it to be a dread, a pain, a hassle. It's a drudgery. Never what God intended. And thirdly, and most detrimentally, he affirms to the Pharisees, you don't know me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And your failure to rightly apply God's law in this regard is an indication of your legal hearts that are content in self-righteousness. You don't know me. Brothers and sisters, let us examine our hearts and to see whether or not we are walking in the path of the Pharisees in legalism. Or perhaps we've swung the pendulum on the other side and we walk in complete lawlessness. Because either way, the conclusion is the very same. So I think for us, in application of these issues of necessity and mercy, before we ask the question of the Lord's Day, can I? It seems much more appropriate in light of what Jesus has conveyed. Why do I want to? Perhaps in recognizing that God has made the Sabbath for our good and as a day to dedicate ourselves to delighting in him, the best thing that we can ask is, how can what I am doing help me to delight in God all the more? If it doesn't, it needs to wait. I've got six other days to do it. Jesus exposed the legal hearts of the Pharisees and in essence said what he says so many other times in the scriptures. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what we consume ourselves with on God's day is a good indication of where our hearts reside. And I assure you, if you are outside of a relationship with Christ... The Lord's day is a pain. It's a drudgery. But if you are in Christ, it can be, by God's design, a great delight. And so the word of God calls on all of us. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Work six days. The Lord's day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall not do any work. Do what is necessary. Seek to do good. And by all means, call the Sabbath a delight. It's for us that we can have greater affections for God, greater union with God. And we can rest all the more upon God, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us to enjoy him today on the day that he has designed for our good. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that in the curse that you pronounced upon mankind, that our labor and our toil would be hard and it would, be, it would come forth by the sweat of our brow, that in that you were still merciful. You were still merciful to give us a day That we can rest and set aside these things and have our hearts and our lives not consumed by our weekly labors and our earthly concerns, but that we can concern ourselves with the things above, the eternal things that matter, with Christ our Redeemer, and with your great works of creation and redemption. with your great word that serves to instruct us, to comfort us, to strengthen and nourish us. And Lord, we thank you that you've seen fit in your word to show us exactly what you require that we not wander aimlessly. And thank you, O oh God, that in giving us your commands, that you've done so For our good. Because as our creator, you know what is best for us. And so I pray, God, that you give us hearts of obedience. Not out of legalistic adherence. But as what Jesus said, if we love you, we will do your commandments. Because we know that you have established them for our good. We thank you, God, for the Lord's day. We thank you for the joy that it is and that it is ever becoming for us as we consider more and more what you call us to. May it be a delight for us. And may you be pleased by our observance for your glory and for our great and abiding joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.